This is The Guardian. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As government ministers grapple with the fallout from a critical report into the handling of the pandemic, the PM is running the country from a sun lounger. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Well, we need to look at the report. As I say, it's only just come out. We need to ensure that where there are lessons uh, to learn. I, you know, I don't, for a minute... Um, I'd like to lightly ask you the, not the, to say the... lessons to be learned again. That's three times we've heard lessons will be learned. I'm just wondering why you find it unable to apologise. Because we followed the scientific advice we had at the time... On Tuesday, Tory ministers were scrambling to defend the government's handling of the pandemic after a damning cross-party report highlighted what it called the worst public health failures in UK history. And was the Prime Minister front and centre in rebutting the report? Not really. He's holidaying in the hills outside Marbella, though aides insist he's working. Fourth, that the EU and we have got into a low equilibrium, somewhat fractious relationship, but that it need not always be like that but also that it takes two to fix it. Meanwhile, over in Lisbon, Europe Minister Lord Frost was stirring up tensions with the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Today, the EU offered to remove the majority of post-Brexit checks on British goods entering Northern Ireland, so will it be enough? Lisa O'Carroll explains why some are worried they're headed for a trade war. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. Right, let's get to the latest news of the week. I'm joined, first of all, by Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff. Gabby, it's great to have you on. Let's start with this report, the first official report, really, into the government's handling of the pandemic that was published yesterday, this this cross-party piece of work by two select committees. Um, We've heard a lot of the evidence in recent months and we knew kind of roughly what the story was, but it was still quite sobering to read it, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine what it must have felt like if you've lost a loved one to COVID to hear and read about all these missed opportunities to stop it spreading. I mean, the report should be said, the report, doesn't solely blame politicians for that, particularly in the early phrase running up to the belated March lockdown, the significant errors made by its scientific advisors too. And, and the key line is in the report is that it, it, the government made the decisions it did, it concludes because of the scientific advice, not in spite of it. And I think, you know, to be honest, that is borne out by reading some of the old stage minutes with some hindsight. But of course, even if the scientific advice was flawed, in the end, you know, advisors advise, ministers decide, and that's where the government's responsibility to interrogate the advice it receives 
Greens comes in. And I think what's going to be much harder for government to explain away is what happened in autumn and winter, where the scientists were much more cautious, begging for a lockdown, and the, the Prime Minister didn't want one. It looks like the scientists learned from their early mistakes and politicians didn't. And that is going to be the question I think we're going to have to answer, because obviously the death toll in the second and third waves of, of coronavirus was also extremely high. I was going to ask you that, Gabby, because it reports sort of pulls its punches a little bit on that, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's mainly focused on the early stages of the pandemic, but it essentially says we can't possibly know whether it would have been a b- better to call a lockdown in the autumn and points out that, that you know, they had this circuit breaker in Wales and that they still ended up in, in a lockdown later on because of the, the variant that emerged. What did you make of that? I think we can't assume it would have been worse, put it that way. And it's true that the evidence from Wales isn't isn't all that clear. You know, they did they did try the lockdown and it didn't have the dramatic effect they wanted. But then we don't know the the, the flip side of that. You know, if Wales hadn't had a lockdown, would its death toll have been much higher? You have to assume it would be. So it's always hard to sort of produce the counterfactual to know exactly what would have happened if you hadn't made X or Y decision. But I think in that second phase, the winter phase, I think the report has been kind of generous to government on two two scores one one the you know the, the extent of the latitude it, it gives them then secondly the sort of i mean the return to school for one day in january remains to me one of the most baffling aspects of this this whole um, mess because that's the point at which you think you know come on this is not making decisions based on the evidence the decision to let people have one day of christmas you know all these things are really you look back at them and think it was a kind of madness and I, it does feel to me as if that that you know there's much more there for the public inquiry, the the big public inquiry that's coming uh, next year to dig into. I think that may be a little bit less forgiving. And Stephen Barclay was the the minister sent out to sort of defend the government on the on the morning the report was published. He claimed not to have read it, which didn't seem tremendously helpful. But he also refused to apologise, didn't he, to bereaved families and said the government t- did take decisions to move quickly uh, last spring, despite the, the findings of the report. Why was he taking that stance, do you think? I wonder if there's partly a list of legal liability here, you know, government thinking that the families may well feel entitled to sue them, um, which, frankly, if I was um, a bereaved relative, I would certainly be considering by this point. Um, But also, you know, we know this is a government that doesn't do sorry. Their instinct is always to tough it out. It's staggering, really, in a way that that they can, you know, they they will take this approach of, you know, just just keep going, put your head down, plough through it. And actually, that's turning out to be significantly more effective than than morally it should be. And I'm not sure that much, that, that anything is now going to shake people from those views. I and mean, when we've heard more shocking things from sort of Dominic Cummings than we have from, from this report, and yet it doesn't seem to have shaken a large number of people's faith in this government. I mean, I, I must admit, I'm surprised by that. I thought killing your own citizens would, would be a sort of line in the sand for a government. But it's almost as if the constant rolling nature of the crises at the moment means people don't dwell on the last one. It's on to worrying about the next one, wherever the next one is. Mm. And it, you mentioned Cummings there. We should just, we're having a whole separate conversation about Northern Ireland in this podcast, but we should just mention he's it, it popped up yet again, hasn't he? And sort of inserted himself back into the debate this week, called the Prime Minister a joke, claimed that he didn't understand what the customs union was even till late 2020. What, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, his 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 argument is very much that it's, you know, you can say the deal was a terrible one and they've made a mess of Brexit, but you don't understand how hard it was negotiating with a sort of, I paraphrase, but not much idiot for a prime minister in difficult circumstances. I think we should probably be reminded, this is normally the point in which you say, and he's got a book to sell. Um, Dominic Cummings hasn't written a book, but he does have um, a Substack account to which he's uh, flogging subscriptions. And I think 
uh, every now and then he needs to reinsert himself into the public debate to draw attention to his existence. But I'm not sure that the, the value of that is quite as high as it used to be. No, indeed. Um, let's move on to, to uh, another crisis, Gabby, the energy crisis, which is still rumbling on. And we've had warnings from big manufacturing companies. They might have to halt production if nothing is done about their energy bills in the coming days and weeks. Um, meanwhile, the Prime Minister's observing all this from his uh, holiday villa, or rather from, from Zach Goldsmith holiday villa, I think, just outside Marbella. What do you make of it? It's all a mess, isn't it? I mean, there's no good time ever for a prime minister to go on holiday. And, and frankly, there's no point being grudging about that. A fit and rested prime minister is in the national interest and he ought to be having a holiday. But it's just the sort of chaos unfurling at home while he's doing so. So we have the Treasury and, and Business Department at odds over the weekend over whether or not they were putting together a, a rescue package. I mean, astonishing, you know, Treasury source saying after the Business Secretary had said, well, we're looking to the Treasury for help, a Treasury source saying, well, we're not in any talks and it's the first, not the first time he has made something up in interviews. Um, and now we have sort of, that's been been brushed over. Number 10 has, has sided with business. Now there's going to be some kind of bailout. But I think what we're looking at is the fundamental difference here over when government intervenes and, and how dramatically it does so. This is a government that, that promised to do whatever it takes. You know, it was meant not to be a standard Tory government. It was going to be a big spending, big state interventionist government that was on the side of ordinary working people. A lot of the heavy manufacturing we're talking about is based in red wall constituencies. You know, this is supposed to be a government for steel workers, for the ordinary working person. So how can it not intervene when when heavy manufacturing is at risk? I think this, this we've resolved this particular argument, but expect to see that argument come up again in different forms. I think how far does the government expect business to stand on its own two feet and how far is it prepared to, to intervene? Well, and also how far is Rishi Sunak willing to go along this road with Boris Johnson and with Kwasi Kwarteng? So it, it was it, the, the row was played out between Kwarteng, the business secretary and Sunak publicly. But there's also a, a clash really with fundamentally with the prime minister here, isn't there? I mean, Rishi Sunak wants to paint himself to the Tory party, doesn't he? As the sort of, you know, fiscal rectitude, traditional Tory, you know, didn't, don't think he really wanted to go ahead with that tax rise that they're doing for the NHS. So at what point does he decide, hang on, this is this is not really me. I can't put up with this. Yeah, and I think there's two there's two clashes of interests almost. There's there is a sort of political clash of interest, different directions for the economy to take, and there's a very practical one, which is the prime minister keeps making promises and then assuming someone else will just sort out how that you know how that's paid for, and it's always Rishi Sunak in the position of of having to find a solution. And if you are significantly more popular than the prime minister, as all the polling tells us, you know, how long are you willing to put up with being the guy that's always put in the awkward position? I mean, I think these differences between chancellors and prime ministers, as we've learned from a number of past governments, not least the Blair Brown one, um, are incredibly destabilising for a government. And I think the relationship between number 10 and number 11 will reward watching carefully over the next few months. And of course, Gabby, the, the the Chancellor gets his sort of moment in the sun, his moment at the dispatch box later this month, doesn't he, with a, a budget coming up. He's already announced the big tax measures we're likely to see, hasn't he? We've had, we know about that national insurance rise. We know corporation tax rates are going up. He told us that in March. Most of this is going to be about the spending review, isn't it? And it looks as though other departments aside from um, the health service are going to have a pretty tough time. 
Yeah, we know there's, as you say, there's going to be more money for health and social care, although arguably not enough. What we don't know is what that means for other spending departments. And we know from the March budget that the Treasury was forecasting an overall reduction in spending towards the end of the Parliament of around four billion. So where's that fall? You know, that must mean that somebody is going to lose out. How does that fit with the idea of of ending austerity? Because the the, gov- the departments that you might think of of cutting back in order to have more to spend on health and social care. You know, their government, their departments that were paired to the bone over the last few years. I suppose the one positive is that with unemployment a lot lower than we thought it was probably going to be at this stage coming out of the pandemic, the economy may be in slightly better shape than expected at this point. The other thing I think to watch out for this spending review is it comes just before COP26, the big climate change summit. So it should have, in theory, quite a green flavour. We're expecting imminently a strategy on how to wean people off their gas boilers, which is obviously going to be a big, really expensive change for a lot of people. So are there going to be any financial incentives or grants to help them do it? You know, what's the, are we looking at some new green taxes? Are we, what are we looking at here? Because if not, I think the industrial energy crisis is about to be followed by a household one. We're already seeing fuel bills going up sharply this winter. And if people are being forced to move to more expensive heating systems with big upfront costs, that's that's really going to move the pain up the income scale. Just one more, Gabby, before we go. Um, as you say, we've sort of had these rolling crises, energy crisis. We've got um, reports on the news this morning that Felix Stowe is turning around uh, ships because you know, there aren't enough containers, enough space to put the containers because the containers aren't being picked up because we haven't got enough drivers. It, is Labour doing enough to capitalise on what seems like an almighty mess? I think the message most people will have heard insofar as they've kind of registered anything from Labour over the last few weeks is just Labour people repeatedly saying, get a grip, get a grip, get a grip, which you know is entirely tempting and right to say. Um but I don't think they've managed to make the capital out of it or the drama out of it that they could. In some ways, you know, all the drama is being supplied by the government fighting with itself. And Labour has seemed sort of somewhat sort of standing helplessly on the fringes. And I'm not quite sure how it takes control of that argument, but it needs to find a, a way of doing so that's not just popping up at the end of the news bulletin saying, well, this isn't going very well. You know, I think we can all tell that for ourselves. <laughs> Indeed. All right, Gabby Inslip, thanks very much. Thanks. After the break, is the UK headed for a trade war over the Northern Ireland Protocol? We'll be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now, is the Northern Ireland Protocol doomed? And what exactly would that mean? Today, the EU published its proposals to resolve disagreement over the protocol, but there's one problem. 
Lord Frost, who's negotiating on behalf of the UK, wants to scrap it altogether. And he keeps threatening to trigger Article 16, which would suspend key parts of the protocol if he isn't happy with what the EU is proposing. This is just the latest hiccup in a long line of hiccups, including when, in January, the EU almost triggered Article 16 itself over the UK's vaccination programme, which the government has yet to forgive them for. So, does the UK government actually want a workable protocol? And what happens next? My colleague Rowena Mason, The Guardian's deputy political editor, put these questions to Lisa O'Carroll, our Brexit correspondent, and started by asking her to remind us all what the Northern Ireland Protocol is. The Northern Ireland Protocol was just a set of arrangements designed to, if you remember, there's a lot of controversy about Brexit potentially, meaning a hard border would be erected on the island of Ireland again. So it was it was designed to obviate that, to avoid that. But it meant that there would be border essentially would be in the Irish Sea, which is the cause of all the tensions with the unionist community who feel that it is basically undermining the uh, union of Northern Ireland and the three other countries and obviously their British identity. Essentially, it means there, there are checks on goods, doesn't it, between two different parts of the United Kingdom? Yes, there are checks on goods and on critically on food, fresh food. And of course, the UK's Brexit minister, Lord Frost, he designed this protocol relating to Northern Ireland, but he is now one of its fiercest critics and has demanded a series of changes to the protocol in July. Can you just explain to us what it is that he now doesn't like about his own text? Yes, it's been it's been really interesting just in the past week at the Tory party conference and just now with Lord Frost in Brussels. Um, at the Tory party conference, I spoke to Marc Francois, the chair of the European Research Group, and they talked about signing up to the overall deal back in January 2020 um, with a flawed protocol, knowing that it was problematic. But he said it was because there was a greater prize to be won, which was getting out of the European Union. So that was their absolute priority. And now Lord Frost has just more or less confirmed that is the case with Downing Street. So what we know is that Boris Johnson went into this with his eyes wide open. Now, the problem they have is that um, in the unionist eyes, checks that they didn't envisage on goods and on food, on, you know, the, you know, sausages are the ones we hear a lot about, but there are also checks on, for instance, soil, on um, plants going into garden centres. Essentially, you can't bring plants in from GB, nor can you bring in secondhand cars. There are also problems with guide dogs, with pet passports, um, with potato seeds coming from Scotland. And um, medicines is the one that is frequently mentioned by the unionists as something that, you know, the supply of which is disrupted by the by the protocol. And it's it, it's striking, isn't it, that Lord Frost has been speaking as if the Northern Ireland Protocol was something imposed on the UK rather than something that the country signed up for. Did, did that strike you during Lord Frost's speech that he gave in Portugal? Yes, it did. But it is nothing new for those of us who've been following Frost since the summer when he laid out the UK's demands that the protocol be substantially rewritten in July. And if you go back to Easter, when we saw the disorder and disruption on the streets in Belfast, we know that the unionists were very, very unhappy. And in 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 this regard, the kind of stars of the unionist community and the Tory party have aligned, you know, with a straight face, Lord Frost can say, as he did in Portugal, that they signed that protocol in good faith. 
um, but that it is not unreasonable that the protocol should be rewritten. And he went further than he did before, and it basically said that they wanted a new protocol. That's why I'm sharing with the Commission today a new legal text, the text of an amended protocol reflecting the proposals in our command paper and supporting not undermining the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And there's this new point, isn't there, as well, about the European Court of Justice and how the UK doesn't want to see that body as a sort of oversight mechanism for the protocol. Um, Again, why did Lord Frost sign up to this if he was going to decide now that it's problematic? Well, at the time, that was the only option they had. And it was such an incendiary point to make over the weekend by Lord Frost that Coveney um, came out on Irish radio yesterday, completely exasperated over this point and said this is typical of the UK. The unionist community are upset with the trade barriers. They never mentioned the European Court of Justice. Not quite right, but um, his point was that uh, Lord Frost had made a passing reference to the um, EU institutions in the command paper. I think they mentioned two or three times, Um, but they are there. And the UK do want or argue that um, other international treaties don't have uh, arbitration units that sits in in one side's um, institutions and and argues for a sort of neutral arbitration body to replace the ECJ. That's very, very difficult for um, Europe and I suspect it's going to be a red line for them. And that's Simon Coveney, the Irish Foreign Minister that we're talking about. Does Simon Coveney, the Irish Foreign Minister, have a point when he says that Frost keeps shifting the goalposts? Well, I suppose he does, but it is a negotiation. And the very fact that they're using the word negotiation is interesting because the EU were at pains earlier this summer or in the early part of the summer to say they are not renegotiating. If you remember, I think it was... um, von der Leyen's response to the command paper back in July and they said they're not renegotiating. Now both sides are using the word negotiation. So job well done by Lord Frost, you might say. And we're talking just now after Lord Frost's speech in Portugal and before the EU gives its official response to what they want to see from the Northern Ireland Protocol. What are we likely to hear from um, the chair of the Joint Committee and Partnership Council? Well, we're expected to get the four papers from the EU uh, on Wednesday, and I think they're pretty well trailed with key changes. So they are talking already that they envisage that these would reduce checks by way over 50%. They are also going to have a special exemption for national identity products and in a way a bit like the, the you know, the special arrangement of champagne and um, other European foods, they're saying things like the, you know, the iconic British banger would be exempt from any checks. So what, in summary, does all of this mean? It feels like the UK and the EU are in constant battle over the, the protocol. But do you think this week's events in themselves have really made any difference? I guess they've focused minds, haven't they? They've focused them very sharply. You know, Lord Frost in Portugal said that the EU would be wrong to think that the UK was trying to keep the Brexit pot boiling. He said there's absolutely no political advantage or capital to be gained by the UK in keeping the Brexit row going. I'm not sure people would agree with him on that. Um, There is definitely a point of view that it's one good topic to keep a disparate um, voter base together. And on the EU side... I guess what it, it you know it's 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 rankled the likes of France in particular, and I, I think it will have it, it will have lasting damage. But in the same way as the EU threatening to trigger Article sixteen in January over the vaccines has has created lasting damage. 
And a lot of commentators are worried about a potential trade war if things continue as they're as they're going at the moment. Um, does it seem like a, a rational plan to you that Lord Frost or anyone else in the UK government would potentially risk this, given what else they're dealing with in the UK at the moment? It would seem a, a huge price to pay, wouldn't it, for a deterioration of relations between neighbours. And lots of commentators think that um, the UK will trigger Article 16 and that the talks are almost doomed, given what Frost has said in, in the last three speeches. You know, it's difficult to see what the the UK wants out of, out of this. A trade war is certainly something that isn't very attractive to anybody. I think, and Lord Frost himself has said that if there was any retaliation in the EU, it would have to be proportionate. People at LSE, the London School of Economics, say the same, and that the retaliatory measures that the EU would take would be very focused on sort of totemic British products like Scottish salmon or Scottish whiskey, which would be ironic as Lord Frost used to work for the Scottish whiskey trade body. Um, so I think that's that's where we would end up. But, you know, we've got three, four weeks yet of negotiations. So, Lisa, that was going to be my next question. What is the timing of all of this? When do you think it's going to come to a head? Lord Frost has given it um, three weeks of intense negotiations. Lots of people think that he might trigger Article 16 earlier at the end of October. But there are others who think, no, that the UK needs COP26, the climate change conference in Scotland, to pass before they um, rock the boat again. So mid-November. But who knows? Let's see how the EU proposals land and, you know, what sort of compromises emerge in the next three, four weeks. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Before I go, I want to ask you to do us a little favour. We want to know more about what you like about the show and what kinds of things you'd like to hear more of. So the team's put together a survey for you to take, if you have a couple of minutes to spare. So head over to theguardian.com slash podcast dash survey. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Make sure also to listen to Politics Weekly Extra on Friday as Jonathan Friedland speaks to Jessica Taylor of the Cook Political Report about the off-year elections coming up at the start of November and what they tell us about next year's all-important midterms. But for now, I want to thank our guests Rowena Mason, Gabby Hinsliff and Lisa O'Carroll. The producer this week was Yolene Goffan. I'm Heather Stewart. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.